Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called, Don't Flatter the Rich, Don't Plunder the Poor. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, September 6, 2009. In her movie, Wendy and Lucy, the independent filmmaker Kelly Reichert explores the people in America who are one sickness or one accident away from personal catastrophe. Wendy and her dog Lucy are stranded in a depressing mill town in Oregon after they left Indiana for a better life in Alaska. Wendy is frugal. She's resourceful. She records her expenditures in a spiral notebook. She sleeps in her car, collects cans and bottles for spare change, and she freshens up in a gas station bathroom. She works hard to find work, but after many fruitless attempts to find work, Wendy observes to a security guard who's befriended her that you can't get a job without an address or a phone number. Of course, she has neither. The security guard responds wisely, heck, You can't get an address without an address, and you can't get a job without a job. It's all rigged. Minor infractions with rule-keeping bureaucrat reap major consequences for Wendy. When her 20-year-old car needs a $2,000 repair, we find her in the last scene of the movie hopping a train. But where will she go? and what will happen to her. In the book, The Working Poor, Invisible in America, from 2004, Pulitzer Prize winner David Shipler shows how, for people like Wendy, poverty can be both a cause of problems and the result of problems. Shipler writes, A rundown apartment can exacerbate a child's asthma, which leads to a call for an ambulance, which generates a medical bill that cannot be paid, which ruins a credit score, which hikes the interest rate on an auto loan, which forces the purchase of an unreliable used car, which jeopardizes a mother's punctuality at work, which limits her promotions in earning capacity, and which confines her to poor housing. We should be very careful about blaming the poor for their poverty. Some of the hardest working people are poor people. Barbara Ehrenreich has made a career as a writer, authoring a dozen books. In her best seller from the year 2001, Nickel and Dimed on Not Getting By in America, Ehrenreich describes how for six months she lived the life of an unskilled but fully employed wage earner. In Florida, she worked as a waitress on the 2 p.m. to 10 p.m. shift, then as a house cleaner for Molly Maid. In Maine, she worked as a dietary aide at a nursing home and as a hotel maid. In Minnesota, she clerked at Walmart the largest private employer in the nation, with 825,000 people on the payroll. Ehrenreich lived in budget motels and dangerous trailer parks. She ate only what she could afford, which tended to be fast food. 
she discovered that she needed two unskilled jobs just to squeak by, and overall found herself physically and emotionally drained. These unskilled wage earners that Shipler and Ehrenreich portray constitute about 30% of the American workforce who earn less than $10 an hour. They're the people we pass every day who make our American way of life possible. They clean our office buildings at night, service at restaurants, repair our cars, handpick our fresh produce, and mow and blow our suburban yards. Even though these people work long and hard, they barely make ends meet. According to the National Coalition for the Homeless, in the median state, a minimum wage worker would have to work 89 hours each week to afford a two-bedroom apartment at 30% of his or her income, which is the federal definition of affordable housing. The scriptures this week offer a rather politically incorrect perspective on the poor. Psalm 146, Proverbs, and the Epistle of James all blame the rich for the plight of the poor. Rich people, they say, oppress, exploit, and plunder the poor precisely because they are poor and for their own advantage. Rich people manipulate the legal system to crush the poor in courts of law. And so James considers it a bitter irony that some early Christians favored the rich and discriminated against the poor. He pictures an early church where believers favored rich people who were dressed in nice clothes and expensive jewelry. They offered them the best seats in church, then patronized the poor and the poorly dressed by seating them where they wouldn't offend anyone. You've insulted the poor, writes James. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who slander the noble name of him to whom you belong? Later in his epistle, he turns up the heat even higher. These rich people, says James, hoard wealth instead of sharing it. They live in luxury while withholding wages from workers, and they glory in their indulgence. Whereas people often think that their wealth is a sign of God's blessing, James compares their wealth to a toxic chemical that has corroded their character and will burn their flesh like fire. James 5, 1-6 Maybe it's human nature to flatter the rich, and to demonize the poor. Even monks who sought the complete shedding of possessions could rationalize their flattery of the rich. As a Christian in ministry, I've raised my own financial support for 20 years, so I've always loved the biting satire of St. Nilus the ascetic, who died in the year 430. Listen to St. Nilus. We monks come fawning to the rich like puppies wagging their tails in the hope of being tossed a bare bone or some crumbs. To get what we want, we call the rich benefactors and protectors of Christians. We attribute every virtue to them, 
even though they may be utterly wicked. Evagrius, who died in the year 400, considered it a trick of the devil to befriend the rich on the pretense of helping the poor. He writes, The devil suggests that we should attach ourselves to wealthy women and advises us to be obsequious to others who have a full purse. And so, after deceiving the soul, little by little he engulfs it in avaricious thoughts and then hands it over to the demon of self-esteem. The latter calls up in our imagination crowds of admirers who praise the Lord for the works of mercy we've performed. Christians should favor the poor, not because of any political agenda of the right or left, but because we're called to imitate the character of God. Using a legal metaphor, Proverbs says that God is the maker of the poor, their advocate, their vindicator who will take up their case, Proverbs 22, 2 and 23. James adds that God has especially chosen the poor to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who loved him. James 2.5 The Apostle Paul was a latecomer to the gospel. He converted on the road to Damascus around the year 35 A.D. Fourteen years after his conversion, he traveled to Jerusalem to seek the favor of the original group of twelve apostles. He knew that he needed their imprimatur, and indeed, he received what he calls the right hand of fellowship from the movement's leaders. Later, when he recalled this trip in his letter to the Galatians, Paul wrote something very revealing about the first followers of Jesus. What did the leaders of the Jesus movement in Jerusalem require of Paul? We read in Galatians 2.10, All they asked, was that we remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. For further reflection, what has been your experience with both rich and poor people? How can Christians best help the poor? How do the rich plunder, exploit, crush, and oppress the poor? And for further reading, see Barbara Ehrenreich's three-part op-ed series for the New York Times in the summer of 2009, in which she revisits the themes of her earlier book, Nickel and Dimed, in light of the current recession. And now for books. Richard John Newhouse, American Babylon, Notes of a Christian Exile. New York Basic Books, 2009, 270 pages. When Richard John Newhouse died of cancer in 2009, America lost one of its most public and conservative Christian intellectuals. The arc of his life had the look and feel of providence. Born in Canada, he became a naturalized American. 
A high school dropout, he advised presidents like George W. Bush. Ordained in the conservative Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, in the 60s he joined forces with the Catholic Daniel Berrigan to engage in civil rights issues as a pastor to a Brooklyn congregation of blacks and Hispanics. After Roe v. Wade in 1973, he began to turn rightward. In 1990, he converted to Latin Rite Catholicism, was ordained a priest, and founded the Institute on Religion and Public Life in its journal, First Things, whose mission statement is, quote, to advance a religiously informed public philosophy for the ordering of society. You don't have to agree with Newhouse's unapologetic neoconservatism to appreciate the vigor with which he engaged Christian identity in the public square. Yes, he denied communion to Catholic politicians whom he considered insufficiently pro-life. He refers to Pope John Paul as the Great. He vigorously defended natural law theory. He warmed up to Lincoln's notion of America as the world's last best hope and defended democratic capitalism. And yet, there he is, engaging Peter Singer's Singer's advocacy of infanticide and eugenics, or Richard Rorty's liberal ironism, a chapter alone which is worth the whole book. He wonders aloud about the new atheism and whether atheists can be good citizens. He circles back to Augustine and Aquinas, Jefferson and Madison, then forward to Alistair MacIntyre, Derrida, Newman, and the Niebuhrs. Drawing upon the theme of exile in Babylon, Newhouse considers how believers must be very much in the world, but not a worldly people, and how we must, as Jeremiah told the ancient Jews, seek the welfare of the city where God has placed us, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. His controlling argument is that Christians live in in hope between the already of the kingdom inaugurated and the not yet of its consummation, rejecting both despair and presumption. Despite his conservative boosterism, Newhouse advises a disciplined skepticism about politics. He admits that Christian hope is painfully provisional, and that theodicy admits to no intellectually satisfying answer. Christians of both the mainline left and the conservative right, he says, have contributed to the political corruption of Christian faith and the religious corruption of authentic politics. Faithfulness in exile can take many different forms. And whether believers have tried coexistence or accommodation with Babylon, separation, subversion, or even insurrection, Newhouse credits all with good faith efforts, even though none of us have found ultimately satisfying solutions. And so we live in faith for what we we have not and cannot see. And now for film, The Hurt Locker, from 2009. As I watch this powerful drama, 
about a bomb squad set in Iraq in 2004. I kept wishing that someone would strap Bush and Cheney into some seats and make them watch what their preemptive war does to human beings. The basic drama, which is not a documentary, follows three members of an explosive ordnance disposal team whose specialization is to find and defuse the infamous improvised explosive devices. They find these devices under piles of trash, inside of human corpses, in the trunk of a car, and in the green zone. But there's a larger drama at work here as we watch how three very different soldiers cope in very different ways with this job and what it does to each of their psyches. In this sense, the film is far more personal than political. The film does an especially good job of showing how difficult it is in Iraq to distinguish between friend and foe. The Iraqis watching the soldiers from their balconies and minarets feel as ominous as the bombs themselves. The Hurt Locker was filmed mainly in Jordan and has received uniformly rave reviews. I highly recommend it. The Hurt Locker from 2009 And finally, for poetry and prayer, We've posted a prayer of Mother Teresa and Brother Roger of Taze. It's a prayer jointly written by Mother Teresa and Brother Roger. It's taken from Catherine Spink's book, Mother Teresa, A Complete Authorized Biography, pages 152 to 153. O oh God, the Father of all, you ask every one of us to spread love where the poor are humiliated, joy where the church is brought low, and reconciliation where people are divided, father against son, mother against daughter, husband against wife, believers against those who cannot believe, Christians against their unloved fellow Christians. A prayer jointly written by Mother Teresa and Brother Roger, the founder of Taze. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, September 6, 2009. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.